The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. There's something truly beautiful about a storm at a distance when you're in, in safety, right? Whether that's you're sitting in a campsite and you, and you get to look out and see something or if it's on a screen in front of you, there's something awe and almost wonderful about looking at a thunder and lightning storm or seeing a hurricane or a tornado. But all of that changes the moment the storm is coming directly at you. That fear and tremble, or that um, awe and wonder turns in fear and trembling and maybe some pant changing in the process because you're having to ultimately now face that storm. I lived in Oklahoma for six years and uh, during that time, I got to see many wonderful storms at a distance. 99.99% of the time, it was just awe and wonder. Yes, there's a little bit of fear, like, is it going to get closer? But most, most often, it was, wow, that is just so beautiful or just so crazy. Um, but there's two specific times when there was just sheer fear and trembling. The first time was I had just graduated college and I was with a friend and we were doing a CrossFit workout at his house and um, we started our run and all of a sudden things got very eerie quiet. Now, I don't know how when the last time you were in nature or just, just pretty much anywhere, it's very loud, right? Like the bugs chirp, you know, the bugs making sounds, the birds chirping. Hey, maybe even this bear starts ruffling some uh, of the, fe- or the grass and you, you hear noise. And so if something goes deathly still, it's very noticeable. I had no idea what it meant when they said the calm before the storm until that day. Because right as that stillness really sunk into my mind, I heard the sirens warning us that a tornado was coming. And within moments, I started to hear and feel what sounded like a freight train coming towards me. And as I looked up to my absolute terror, there was a tornado about halfway to the ground. Now, I'm not saying out in the distance. I mean, I'm literally looking at the hole of the tornado. I'm directly under it. I didn't know I could run so fast in my entire life into my buddy's house. The second time was when my daughter was roughly three or four months old, Charlie, our oldest. And a similar thing happened. We had put her to bed. Rachel and I were kind of hanging out, and then we were starting to get ready to bed ourselves. And there's a lot of bugs in Oklahoma, and they're very loud. And so when it goes very still, once again, it's noticeable, even inside our home. And all of a sudden, that silence was cut with a tornado warning. So we quickly grab our daughter. We feel that kind of that thunder or that sound and experience that house trembling. We grab our daughter. We turn on the news and we are told, hey, there's a tornado coming directly towards your neighborhood. Now, when you're in Oklahoma, they kind of give you some ideas and tips of what to do when you're facing a storm like that. The first thing is to get into a storm shelter, whether that's above ground or below ground. But what makes a storm shelter a storm shelter is the foundation that it's laid. A foundation has to be firmly planted deep within the core of the earth because it doesn't matter what happens on the outside. It matters what happens to what you're standing on. And so you want to be in a space that is completely grounded into the core of the earth so that if the wind comes against it and, and you know, maybe cows, like what's the movie that... Um, 
Wizard of Oz, right? Maybe the cow from Wizard of Oz comes and hits something. The foundation won't break. If you can't get into a storm shelter because you don't have time or don't have access to one, the next thing to do is to get to the most center part of the building you're in where there is no windows, you're on the interior wall, um, so that if the walls collapse around you, that's the strongest part of the foundation of the home. Hopefully the foundation will hold true because you always have hope when you're on the foundation. Now, the first time, the tornado Andy hit about two miles away from us didn't even look like anything happened near us. So it was awesome. It still scared me. The second time, the tornado hit the street in front of my house, but not mine. It looked like a war had gone off over there, but only a few shingles had come off of my home in the midst of it. And even all the wind and the sounds and all the things that were happening, the foundation held true. And so we were safe. Today, as we continue in this series entitled Foretold, where we are looking in the Old Testament of places where Jesus is being declared, we are gonna be looking at a passage of scripture that God gives a foundation for the Israelites to stand upon when a storm is coming directly towards them. And ultimately, he's saying that if you stand on this foundation, you will have a hope to get through it. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I do have dyslexia, and I've tried practicing this many times, but there's some words today (laughs) that I'm just going to have to run through quickly because it's not coming out right. (laughs) So give me grace um, in that. Because, yeah, here we go. So in uh, Isaiah 9, starting at verse 1, it says this, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he was made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the deep darkness, on them the light shined. You have multiplied the nations and you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divided the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders and the rod of his oppressors you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every brute that is trampling warrior and battle tunic and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And on the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to be established and it will uphold with justice and with righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. A few weeks ago when I was uh, preaching, I, I was sharing that when it comes to reading our Bibles, we need to be cautious to not read it the way we read our books today. And the reason for that was because the Bible's chapters and verses were added after its completion, not in the midst of it. And so oftentimes, the writers would just start a new chapter at the end of a scroll, not the end of a thought. And so we have to be mindful of that when we're reading. 
Now, a good indication that you're picking up in the middle of something is if you word the things like therefore, but, or yet. Those words are telling us that we actually need to go back and look at what's happening so we can understand where we are at. And so we started with that in verse one. And so we actually need to go back a little bit to chapter eight. And we are told that the Lord comes to this guy named Isaiah, who is a prophet of God. Now, a prophet isn't someone who looks at a globe and kind of rubs it the right way. And hopefully something appears out of it and goes, ah, that's what the future is going to be. A prophet rather in scripture is someone who dwells in the presence of God, rests in his peace and his love and his mercy, and hears directly for God, from God and has given a task. That task could be to say something to people, to write something out, or to simply do something to reveal it in their actions. And so we're told that God comes to the the prophet Isaiah and says, take a large tablet and write this out, belonging to, oh, this is not going to happen, Marsha Hazabaz, going with that. And it says, it goes on to say that this is going to be your son. And that name means before he can say mother or father, the Assyrian kingdom is going to come to punish Israel. He goes on to talk about all the punishment that's going to come. Now, hopefully when you hear that, you start to ask the question, why? Or what did they do? Because uh, if you don't, you're going to often miss so much about what's happening in, in Scripture. See, too often I think so many people think the God of the Old Testament and then the God of the New Testament are different. This God is angry, vicious, and wrathful, and this God is loving and peaceful and kind. And the reason we do that is because we look at isolated passages of Scripture instead of looking at what's actually happening. Because the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is exactly the same. He has not changed and he will always be the same. And so we should ask the question, why? Now, I know that's probably more true to me. My mom and dad always joke that my first words were not mother or father. They were why. And so uh, that's why probably I ask this more often, but we should. And so we are actually told why 13 years later uh, in, first, in Second Kings chapter uh, 15, why this punishment is coming. We are told this uh, in verse 22nd in that the 52nd year of Uzziah, king of Judah, Perkah, the son of Rehalim, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. He reigned for 20 years and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. For he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naphtali, which made Israel sin. And so we are told that the reason why this punishment is coming is because Israel has been living in sin from this guy named Jeroboam, which then hopefully should get you to ask, what did Jeroboam do, right? And so to understand what Jeroboam did, I'm going to have to go backwards a little bit into this history of the Bible. And so if you're not like history, uh, I'm sorry, I'll wake you up when I'm done. If you need to take a quick nap, but nevertheless, I need to help you understand what's happening so we can get to the understanding of what Jeroboam has done. 
So last week, um, Pastor Michael talked about like the start of mankind and the, ultimately the fall of man in sin and how God ultimately promises to bring a savior. And so he um, starts to, God starts to look through the land and starts to, to try to find someone to be his representative. Um, and he finds this guy named Abram. Now, Abram isn't this special, he's you know, this perfect human being, but rather he was simply someone that said yes to God. The best way to understand that, if I was to say to you today, hey, I want to go take my kids somewhere, does anyone want to help support that? And someone goes, sure, I'll give you a couple bucks. I'm like, oh, I choose you, right? right? Because you just offered it, like you rose your hand to the request. That's what Abram does. And God says to Abram, he makes this thing called the covenant. And he says to him, if I am your God... And your family is my people. You will be a blessing to the world. If you worship me and me alone, you will be blessed. So Abraham, or Abram, then he turns to Abraham, starts to, to walk in, a, in the way of the Lord. But he does it kind of sometimes with him, trusting him, believing him, and then sometimes he doesn't. And he goes back and forth and back and forth with, okay, I'm fully committed to God. And then, oh, I'm not sure about that. And eventually his sons do the same. And those sons eventually get brought into the land of Egypt. And in Egypt, they live there in oppression for 400 years where they are slaves and have to live under the Egyptian rule and reign. And eventually God brings up a man named Moses who then takes his people out. And as they walk into the towards what he calls the promised land, they end up at this big mountain called Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up onto the mountaintop and God says to him, okay, I have some things for you. And he gives them a bunch of rules and laws and they can be summarized this way, but Jesus summarizes it. So I'm not stealing from, you know, summarizing wrongly. He says, first and foremost, you need to learn to stand on me and me alone. There should be one God and one God only and worship me. The second thing you need to do is to love your neighbors as yourself. He says, all of the laws and, and the prophets can be summarized this way. And this is the foundation, ultimately, that God gives his people at Mount Sinai. He says to them, if you learn to stand on me alone and on and the way and treating people with respect, you will always be a blessing to the rest of the world. You will be blessed. But then he goes on to say that if you ever turn to take, take your feet off of this, you will no longer be a blessing, but you will experience the curses of the things you stand on. Because if you want them to rule you, I'll let them rule you. And you're going to know what it feels like to be ruled by someone who is not merciful, who's not kind, who's not gracious. And so he gives them this firm foundation to uphold and stand on. And they last all of a half a day. Because they go and think, well, he's taking too long on the mountain, so we're going to go make our own God. And so the Israelites start to make their own foundations. They're like, oh, I'm going to worship our own gods. And, and that god, the first one they make is a golden calf. It's important for later. And then they go, oh, I'm going to start looking like the people around me because they, they worship sex or money, and those things look fun. And you know, oh, got, ultimately, they start to, to, start to start creating their own foundations. And through their history, they go from up a little bit of standing on God to, oh, maybe we'll stand on, I'm going to fall every time. I did this last time too. Uh, onto this ground that's not stable and not firm and it's shaky. I'm going to nab workout. And they come back. 
And they go back and forth throughout their history, going from standing on their broken foundation, and they have people come and overturn that, or start to fight and bring oppression to them. And they go, oh, okay, I'm going to worship God again and come back. And then they come back to here. On all this is taking place, this, this lifestyle eventually brings a civil war to the Israelites. And this divide happens and it becomes the 11 tribes, the northern tribes of Israel, and then the single tribe of Judah. And King Jeroboam is the first king of the northern tribe of Israel. And it says in 1 Kings chapter, chapter 15, that after this split has happened and the divide has come, that it started kind of in verse 27. I'm going to summarize a little bit. If I was in the right passage, it would be helpful. First uh, Kings 12, rather, um, starting at verse 25, it says that Jeroboam starts to get nervous or anxious that if the Israelite people um, start traveling back to the land of Judah, to go worship Yahweh there, that eventually they will be reunited together as a nation. And so he doesn't want that because if that happens, he's fearful of his life that they would come to kill him or destroy him. And so he says this in verse 26, then Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if the people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then their heart of his people will turn again to the Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return me. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said to the people, you have gone to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So what King Jeroboam did is he took the northern tribes of Israel and took them off of this firm foundation and planted them completely on their own. He removed them from going to worship Yahweh and said, this is where you stand now. Now, this event took place 187 years before the prophecy I read to you. 187 years. And during this time, God sent prophets to the northern tribe of Israel and said, will you come back to me? Will you get off of this foundation and come back here onto mine? And time and time and time again, Israel said no. They turned their back to God. They crossed their arms. They said, we have nothing to do with you. We don't care. And not a single king in the northern land turned their face toward God. For 187 years, God was saying, come back to me. For 187 years, they said no. And that's what's, at that but statement, that for 187 years, they had turned their back to God and been living on their own path. And then God says, it's time for you to receive the punishment you deserve. Y'all, that's, that's mercy on a level we don't understand. 
We don't give someone a half a day for stabbing us in the back, right? And let's be honest, if a coworker or a friend or a neighbor, a spouse does something that, that goes against your desires and your wills, what is the first and most natural thing for you to do? Be like, sorry, boom, you want my back or you give me your back, I'm giving you mine. And so when we read this, we should have the expectation that God would do what? That God would do this, right? God's like, if you really don't want me, then I'll just take my foundation away. Because this is what we do to people, right? If you're not going to be faithful to me, I won't be faithful to you. You want to stand on your own? Stand on your own. And so many of us today assume that that's what God is going to do to us. I talk to so many people that say, man, they're one or two bad decisions away from God removing his foundation for them. And so we all assume that we would get to this text and it would say, you had your chance. Time to pay the consequences. But in the midst of this four-part prophecy, God says to them, stand on my foundation. And he gives them three things to stand on. The first one is this in verses one through three. He says, stand on my peace, my promised peace. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and in the land of Naphtali, meaning I brought the, the punishment they deserved in. However, in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea and beyond the Jordan River and Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in the darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. For you have multiplied the nations and you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divided the spoil." He says the first thing to these people is, hey, I'm going to give you something to stand on. Stand on my promised peace. Now, when my wife and I, uh, Rachel, got, first got married, we had expectations of what marriage was going to look like. Like most people have expectations of what marriage is going to look like. It's going to be peaceful and joy and rainbows and butterflies. And we're going to go through this fun season of learning one another. Well, those expectations were crushed pretty quickly. Because within the first few weeks of us getting married, my wife started to get sick. And that sickness started to get worse and worse. And within the first six to seven months of our marriage, she had been in and out of the emergency room seven times. And the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong. And they kept trying to prescribe things to her, but nothing was happening. And she was just absolutely miserable. And so we were pretty much without hope, understanding what she was doing. She could barely get out of the bed, let alone get to the couch at that point. We get a phone call from my parents, and they said, hey, um, we're going to send you and your wife to see this specialist down in San Diego. She's a natural path, but she's also got some, her doctorate, so she kind of plays in a little bit of both worlds. And would you just give her a chance to just see if she can be, help your wife and maybe even diagnose what it is? And so we get on a plane, we fly to San Diego, and we go and see this lady. We, we get in the waiting room, we're very anxious and, and kind of nervous. We go into her office, and 
she pricks my wife's, I'll never forget this. She pricks my wife's finger, puts it on a vial and looks through the telescope and then starts to tell, ask my wife and tell my wife everything she's experienced in the last seven months. She's like, do you experience this? Have this happened? I mean, she's literally reading off every single thing that no one else has ever been able to do for us in front of us. My mouth was dropped. Like, how do you know all this? And she goes, because your blood won't lie to me. And so she goes, I have some good news and I have some bad news for you. We're like, okay. So the good news is I know what's happening. You have a little bit of an autoimmune issue and there's a bunch of parasites inside of you, outside of your body. And those things need to go away. And when they do go away, you'll be pretty much a normal like person at your age. Yes, you're going to have some dietary you know, limitations, um, but that's kind of it. The other, and then so, so what's the bad news? Well, the bad news is it's going to take a minimum of two years to fix this. Because those things have been embedded in your life and your blood for so long that they're going to come out kicking and screaming. And it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And also, I'm not saying this is for certain, but with everything I'm seeing, the likelihood of you being able to have children is going to be very slim. Hearing that news was a blessing and also heartbreaking. But that's exactly what happened. Uh, we go back home, she starts getting on the medicine, and I thought it was bad before, but it got very bad. It was so dark at times. And I remember one specific time, I was literally at the lowest moment, and I was just crying out, God, I don't get this. Like, where are you? Why have you abandoned us? And, and I just kind of got this impression, that still voice saying into me, into my soul, Ricky, the, the darkness was promised which means that the peace is also going to, be, is going to come too. That, that promised darkness is a revelation also that my pro, the promised peace will come. And I remember holding on to that and holding on to that, that, hey, if this is an evident, this is, this, if this was true, then this is going to be true. And I remember uh, Going, I was driving to a meeting. I was working at a church in Oklahoma. And I was driving to a meeting at a, at a school. And my wife calls me. She's like, you've got to come home. You've got to go home. I'm like, why? I'm like, I'm in the middle of a meeting. Like, what is so important that you need me to stop everything that I'm doing and come home? She goes, it's because I'm pregnant. That dark season had come to an end when she was able to speak the truth that our child, our first child has come, when we were told that might not ever happen, we were given a hope to hold on to and we got to experience the joy because the promised peace brought joy. And not only do we have one daughter, we have a second daughter and we have our third child coming in November. Because the promised peace. So God gave the Israelites the peace to stand on. Now, as you can see, peace is a narrow thing to stand on. Yes, it's something to stand on that's firm and solid, but you would need a little bit more to be able to be stable. And so the second thing that God gives is he says to the Israelite people, you can learn to stand on my 
faithfulness. I've been faithful once and I will be faithful again. It says in, in verse four that for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of the oppressors have been broken as on the days of Midian. For every brute boot of trampling warrior, a battle tune-up, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And so what God does is he gives them something else to stand on. He says, not only stand on my promised peace, but stand on my promised faithfulness. Now, faithfulness is the intersection of trust and loyalty. It's the intersection of trust and loyalty. I've been loyal once. Will you believe and trust that I will be loyal again? Now, remember, as I said, time and time again, the Israelites have been doing this. They've been standing on him, on the God and then standing on their own ways. And through this time, God constantly was revealing his loyalty and faithfulness to him, to them. And there are many scriptures that he could have pointed to saying, hey, this is a revelation of my faithfulness, but he specifically calls out this war between Midian. Now, that might not mean anything to us, and so we should look back and ask, what is that, right? There's my, my why question. And ultimately, the story of Midian is during the, day, uh, the days of judges, when there wasn't a ruler in Israel, but rather a, just kind of a judge, we are told that the people of Israel stopped worshiping God, started worshiping idols, very similar to what they're doing right now. And so he sends the Midianites to come. And the Midianites are ruling over and they've been there for seven years. And then God appears to a man named Gideon. And he says to a mighty warrior, and he's like, I'm not no mighty warrior. I'm not doing anything but mighty. He's, he's, a, he's hiding. He's a coward in many ways. He says, you are going to raise up an army to fight your enemies. And so he goes into the surrounding areas and starts raising up 32,000 men to face roughly 100 to 500,000 men. Odds are not in their favor, right? That's a little nerve wracking. I would be trembling. God says to Gideon, that's too many people. What do you mean that's too many people? There's, the odds are three to one to five to one. That's a, not enough. And he goes, no, that's too many. And he brings it down to 300 men. So that's what you're going to fight with. What? He goes, and to be fair, or to be even more honest, you're not going to use a weapon. What do you mean I'm going to go to war without a weapon? He goes, no, I want you to pick up a pot and have a torch. That's, that's what you get to go to war. And so we're told that in the middle of the night, these 300 men with their pot and their torches surround the camp. And he says, when I tell you to, you're going to smash the pot, you're going to yell and stick up your torch and see what happens. And so they do that. And what happens? Those men, the army that was encamped around them, start killing one another because they don't know who is a foe or a friend. And they completely annihilate all of themselves. And the Israelite people didn't do a single thing. God fought the battle. And, what he, and so what is he revealing to them is not only can you stand on your promised peace, but you can stand on my promised loyalty that I will be the one to do the battle, not you. You won't have to use a sword. That you can rest on me. You can stand firm here in the midst of the storm. You have a, a way to get off of those broken, fragile 
foundations and plant yourself here. Now, these things would seem to be enough. But God says, no, there's one last thing you need to be able to stand on. He says, you have to stand on my promised son. On my promised son. It says this in verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall become Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David over this kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from the time forth forevermore. For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He says, not only will I give you a promised peace and and give you something to to stand on my faithfulness, but I will allow you to now stand on the promise that there will be someone to firmly get off this ground and never get off this one. That there will be a day when someone comes who lives exactly the way I was called, that, that you were called to live perfectly. Scripture calls him the perfect Adam. The, the man who was how God created it at the beginning, this man to rule and reign peacefully and kind and wonderful. He said, that man will come again. And he will firmly plant himself here and he will rule the world. And because we've been, been blessed to live on this side of the cross, we know that's exactly what took place. We are told in... <clears throat> Uh, Luke 2, verses 10 and 11, says that the angels appeared to these uh, shepherds in the field. It says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all people, for unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is the Christ of the Lord. That this promised Savior has come. I want to know the first thing that he does. It says in Matthew 4.12 is this, that when he hears that John, his, his cousin, was arrested, Jesus withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth, and he went to Capernaum by the sea. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, these two nations, these two areas of land had been conquered and lived in utter darkness. So, so that what was spoken by the prophet of Israel might be fulfilled. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he was born and he comes and does exactly what the scriptures said he would. Is you go back to this territory that was conquered and start to walk through the land. It says that he was declaring that the kingdom of heaven is here. What is the kingdom of heaven? Is that Jesus is the ruler. How did he rule? What was he doing as he walked through those lands? He was being the perfect counselor as he spoke to the brokenhearted and brought hope and healing as he started to rule and reign over the sickness and disease. He brought them to light and to wholeness. He was living exactly what he declared. Now, these people didn't have 
didn't live on that side of the cross or that side of the story. They ultimately had to learn to stand firm on the foundation. On the foundation. And what we were told later on actually is this. Not only does God give them a foundation to stand upon, but later in the prophet of Ezekiel, 10 years into this, into this exile, the prophet gets this image of God leaving the temple and hovering over the people of Israel as they were walking into the exile. So not only did God give them a firm foundation to stand upon, but he also was covering them as they walked in the storm. And what we can hold on to today is that God does not abandon his people even when they abandon him. That God always gives them a firm foundation to stand upon and his covering over their head as they walk in the storm. Caleb is gonna sing for us in a moment a song that's declaring this exact truth. Because too often we assume the circumstances in our world determine where we are standing, but it's not what happens externally that determines whether we will stand or fall, but rather what we are planted on. And that as long as we are firmly planted on Christ, no matter what we face, we will be standing on holy ground. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.